Welcome to Time for Change with Dr. Michelle, where we bring inspiring real life stories of success and transformation, tips and tools to turn your life around no matter where you are at. I'm your host, Michelle Rosen. Hello and welcome to episode nine of Time for Change, where we talk about the power of making those changes that transform our lives and all the tips, tools, and inspiration to turn your life around no matter where you are at and getting you from where you are to where you choose to be. We have a fascinating guest with us today, Michelle Dickinson. Michelle is a culture-changing agent, a top executive, and the daughter of a bipolar mother. Michelle wrote the book, Breaking Into My Life, and made it her mission to promote mental health awareness and create support systems within organizations nationwide to address mental health challenges. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle Dickinson. I'm your host, Michelle Rosen. Hello, and let's welcome into our podcast today, Michelle Dickinson. Michelle combines the world of mental health as the daughter of a bipolar parent and a person who has encountered different aspects of mental health challenges throughout her life with her professional experience as a culture-changing agent that brings culture and changes in culture and enhancement of cultures into the workplace. So I'm very fascinated by the combination of the two and I can't wait to talk to you. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. Great. I'm very excited to have you. So I know that you've authored a book that I absolutely love the title for, and the title is Breaking Into My Life. And that's such a powerful title. And I know that it has to do with your history as the daughter of a bipolar mother and how it impacted you. Tell us about the book and tell us about what brought you to write it. Sure. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, the the title actually was amazing how it came to me at the very end of the writing process. I didn't know what it was going to be, but it, it seems to, to make the most sense. So I grew up with a mother who experienced bipolar. And if you don't know what bipolar disorder is, it's the rapid cycling of mania and depression. And so my mom had that from, gosh, when I was a very young age. And so I cared for her for many years. My father asked me to. It was kind of like, unspoken, but yet sometimes it was necessary. She sometimes would be too fragile to be left alone. So I cared for her and supported her the best I could as a child. So because of that experience, I wanted to share my story. I kind of felt like I had family members say, you know, you came out okay in the face of all of that, right? So I was always reminded that I made it and that that's a good thing. So I gave my TED talk and I got a very wonderful, warm response to that and just said, you know, I think I need to put pen to paper and really write this story. It seems like it's a great opportunity for me to heal first and foremost, like kind of relive some of the painful parts, but have it be a very cathartic journey and then also humanize mental health for people to understand what it is and maybe fear it less and help remove stigma. I'm so fascinated by what you're saying because I'm always fascinated by situations where people come from difficulty and pain and then are able to not only grow out of that, but also use that 
I almost want to say knowledge that comes from that pain, the compassion, the understanding, and channel it for something in their lives. Tell me what it's like to grow up as the daughter of a bipolar mother. Yeah. Now, I will say that this was my normal, so I didn't know any different until I would like go to my girlfriend's houses and see the relationship they had with their mom. I didn't know any different. So my normal was like putting my own needs and my own concerns on the shelf and really making my mom's care paramount. Like that was it. If my mom was okay, then that meant that there was stability in the home and there wasn't an upset and there wasn't uncomfortable moments. It was just everything and anything in my power to give her what she needed, support her, console her when she was crying because of her depression. And really just, if that meant stepping up and cleaning up the kitchen, if that meant stepping up and doing things that normally she would do when she was healthy or in like a a normal period, that's what I did. And it's just what I did. And it shaped me in a way where I wasn't comfortable asking for what I wanted. I wasn't comfortable speaking my truth. And all of that still plays out in my life today as a grown woman, you know, because that's how it was groomed as a very young girl is everyone else's needs and moods and all of that are first and foremost. And then it's me. Right. And so how did it impact you if we look at your teen years, early adulthood years, because when you come to the point that you have a TED talk, when you come to the point that you write a book, when you come to the talk, and we'll talk about that, where you combine that even into the corporate world and into your work there, and you tie it all together, I want to take you to an earlier phase, to the beginning of your journey as a young adult. How did it feel for you then? What was it like placing yourself as secondary, unused to expressing your own difficulties and emotions because you're dealing with a person in crisis on a regular basis? What was it like for you being a young adult? Yeah, so it was definitely hard and I used school as an escape, but I also carried the burden of a secret. Like I didn't want anyone knowing about this because people would judge my family. They would call my mother crazy. So I was very much protective of the secret and really looked for outlets to connect with peers. So school became like a haven because there were weeks on end when I would have to stay home and care for my mom and it would be written off as, oh, she had the flu for two weeks, you know? So, so, I mean, I think that my friends really played a role in it. But then in my early teen years, I found a, a youth group and I got connected to that youth group and I went on a retreat one weekend And like for the first time ever, I felt safe and comfortable. And like that was a place where I could really share what I was dealing with at home for the very first time. Because you got to remember, like I didn't have friends come over. I was too afraid because my mom had burned me before where I had a friend over and she acted very manic and then I had to try to explain it. So I was very cautious with who knew what was going on. But in that space on that retreat, I told my story and I said, listen, it was all under the umbrellas. You just don't know what people are dealing with at home. Right. So just be nice to them. Like be right. nice to them. Because when I come to school and you're nice to me, like that makes all the difference for me because I just like spent all this time with someone who was crying for like five hours and I couldn't do anything. Yeah. But that was a huge release for me because I finally felt comfortable and then they all knew and then the love and the support and just what I was dealing with, I was finally for the first time able to feel like, oh my God, I don't have to carry this by myself. 
And that was a youth group that was specifically for, what was the theme of the youth group? It was, was a Catholic, was the, yeah, it was a Catholic, Catholic youth group because right. I was I was part of the Catholic church and I was in public school. And at that point, the way that you engage in youth is through a youth group. And so I was very connected to that youth group. And how did it impact you going forward that you were able to share what you were going through? So you've had that experience where you could just be yourself yeah, and you could safely express how you feel. And then you went back to your life where yeah. this becomes secondary again. Mm-hmm. So what happens then? No, it was just helpful to know that there was a select group of people that knew what was up, right? right. So when I had moments of like pure upset, I used to try to have to navigate and shoulder that by myself. But then I had like this community where we would get together for youth group meetings and I could just be like, oh my gosh, like this is what I was dealing with. Wow. And so I could actually like, express it and not have to keep it within and try to figure it out by myself or wait until I talk to my aunt when I would visit her once a month because my aunt was also a very strong support mechanism for me. But no, it was it was just great to have a select few I could trust and be and be vulnerable with and authentic with. And so take me a little bit forward, then you left the college? No. So a lot of my friends went away where I I grew up in a great town. A lot of my friends all went off to college and my parents really wanted me to stay home. My mom still was not well. She still needed someone to care for her. So I stayed home and went to community college and worked immediately until I eventually met my husband and that was my way out. And so I was like, oh, I met someone. I got to get out of here because they almost wouldn't allow me to go off to college because there was responsibility at home that needed to be looked after. And so my out was to get married. And that's what I did. You mentioned to me that you recently got divorced. So that was a long marriage. That was up until recently. Oh, Dr. Michelle, that was my second marriage. I've been married twice. So this is my first marriage. And my first marriage was my therapist said that you married the male version of your mom. Yeah. So I gravitated to someone who would be just as emotionally, mentally abusive as my mother. And, you know, after five years, I could see it. Thank God the gift was that I could see it. I pulled myself out of that situation fairly quickly. So that was that was a gift for sure. I think I want to stop for a minute and talk about the roles that we are given by our families. So, you know, a lot of times you go onto your life and you're labeled by or given a role by your closest people, your family. And so for you being the caregiver, being the one who has to be the strong one that provides support for the weak one, whoever that may be, and that's how you receive love, was so engraved in you that I can't imagine what it would take to step out of that role because it's something that is so engraved in you from childhood. And I I think about other roles that other people have from their childhood, whether it be, you know, sometimes it's a role, sometimes it like a caregiver or even a troublemaker, you know, that would be your place in the family. And so that's what you know when you go about and do that, the rebel. Do you feel that you were able to step out of that role? And when exactly did that process start for you? Honestly, it's still a journey for me. I'm still in therapy. I still, we still routinely talk about who I am as a person today and the negative self-talk, the understanding of who I am and all of that still plays out in my life. I think What I've been learning over the years is, well, I was, first of all, my second marriage was very codependent. 
I didn't really know that. But then when I look at back at the codependent relationship I had with my mom, I mean, it's just like amazing. So I think I'm, I'm learning how to pull myself out of that still to this day, like how to speak my truth, how to honor myself, really be there for someone, but don't get lost in that. And that's yeah. something that I, that I always did. I know that there's a struggle, right? Because it's, we gravitate to what's familiar, but not necessarily what's good for us. Yeah. So I constantly have to check myself when I find myself in, you know, a dating situation or a relationship, like, is it comfortable or is it good for me? You know, I always have to check myself on that because just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's right. Because if it's comfortable, then that means there's probably going to be a degree of abuse involved. Probably. I just took note of what you said. You said, is it comfortable or is it good for me? And, you know, my ears were ringing, ding, ding, ding. That was such gold because, again, from that place of how we see ourselves in the world, what you described as the negative self-talk, sometimes even doing, if you're very used to doing negative self-talk, stepping out of that is you know, it's comfortable to do something because you're used to it. So if you're used to negative self-talk, you're just going to do that because that's what you're used to. It takes effort to do something different. It takes effort to reinforce yourself in a positive way. Was there anybody in your life that I'm I'm looking for, you know what I'm looking for, Michelle? I'm Mm -hmm. looking for the catalyst. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for, you know, sometimes people reach a really low point that transforms the way they want to manage things. Sometimes they meet someone. Sometimes they have a role model. I know that it's an ongoing struggle, but Mm -hmm. where was that point when you look back in retrospect, where was that point that you said to yourself, I am done being a caregiver and expecting love in return. I want something different. I deserve something different. Okay. So (laughs) that's a loaded question. Honestly, it's a gift. So I had a a mentor, a very dear friend of a friend actually, who I met along the way. And when I lost my father, I was in a very dark place because both of my parents have since passed away. And when I lost my father, I was in a very dark place. And she said to me, you know, you should go do this self-discovery course. So I went and I did that self-discovery course and it was amazing. It actually started to get me to have some forgiveness and compassion for my mother because I was very angry. I could have never written the book before I got to the point where I wasn't angry anymore. Right. And then I went and I did a lot of uh, Tony Robbins work. Yeah. Because I knew, I knew it would wake me up to something. And I think the biggest peak for me was doing Date with Destiny with Tony a few years, probably like five, five or six years ago now, where I got really present to my life and what I wanted and what I was putting up with and what I was tolerating. And that was my tipping point. That was threshold for me to recognize that I want more, I deserve more, and I don't have to put up with this. So when you grow up with a mother in a situation you have no say over, you learn how to put up with stuff. You get very good at putting up with stuff. And I was putting up with a lot of stuff and I was also not expressing what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So the, the combination of being very good at putting up with crap and then also being very good at don't speak up, don't upset the cart. Those two things were huge for me. And I think in that program is what I got was like, I'm putting up with a lot and I'm not speaking my truth. Who am I if I'm not, if I'm not honoring myself? Absolutely. So I guess my question to you is when you do that now, when you step into the getting familiar over time, but still less comfortable place of speaking your truth, 
of expecting to be loved and validated in spite of not not in return to putting up with stuff, yeah. but in return to just being you. Mm-hmm. How does it feel for you? It's terrifying. It's terrifying because I have a need to be liked. And yeah. a need for people to like me, right? Yeah. I just wanted my mom to love me. I wanted my mom to be proud of me. Right. So when you have that need, then you play to what you think people want instead yeah. of what you want. And so it's yeah. terrifying to be like, you know, that doesn't work for me anymore. And I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like, I know you might not like me for it, but I'm sorry. I have to honor me. So yeah. it's terrifying. It's not comfortable. And it's a muscle that I have to keep flexing to become comfortable with. Is there something that you tell yourself when you're in a situation where you're dealing with someone at work or in your personal life where you sort of feel like you slip back into the place of pleasing in return to love and you tell yourself, no, 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 I need to do something different. Is there something you tell yourself to sort of grasp the moment and turn it around towards where you think it should be? Is there like a mantra? Is there like something that you tell yourself? No, there isn't like a mantra or something I tell myself. I think that I'm just catching myself more and more nowadays. I think therapy helps me with that because that dialogue that goes on in your head is like autopilot unless you start to tune into it and go, well, listen to that crap that it's telling me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the awareness of the dialogue is everything. And I think combating that with something else, I'd rather focus my energy on how ridiculous it is and then acknowledge it and then move on. I mean... I was in therapy two weeks ago and I'm starting this whole new business and this entrepreneur environment. And after being in the corporate space for so long, it's terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. And we got down to the core of what had me so afraid. And it was the statement my mother always said to me when I would try to do something new, different, or daring. She would say to me, who the hell do you think you are? Wow. Who do you think you are? So yeah. imagine that that's running the show and I'm trying to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Who the hell do you think you are that yeah. you think you can do this? Yeah. So when he, when he and I spoke about that and it, I revealed that to myself, I was like, oh my gosh, like I have to remember that this is a little voice that's like yeah. totally keeping me terrified right yeah. now. Yeah. And do you feel that today you're able to answer that question? Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And it's like, yeah, I do. I, I think yeah. I'm powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in, in, in my good moments, I'm powerful beyond measure. Like I have a passion and a, and a commitment to, to really making a massive impact on the world. And, and that gets me very excited, you know, but then there's the trepidation of like, do I have the skills to do it? Can I do it? The angst, right? So, and I think it's normal because that means I care, but I just have to make sure that I don't go back to that dialogue of my mother, who do I think I am? Because yeah. then that, that'll stop me in my, in my tracks. Absolutely. Now tell me about what you do in terms of corporate culture and how it all ties yeah. together and, and about your new entrepreneurial moves. Sure, sure, sure. So the trifecta though, I want to mention the trifecta because this ties into it. So when I say I have this trifecta of mental health, so I, I know what it's like to love someone with a mental illness. It's, it can be very punishing. So I had that whole experience growing up. Right. And then I dealt with my own depression last year. It was like, I'm not immune to, to mental health issues and nobody really is. So that kind of yeah. like woke me up to say, okay, you might've been fine, but like now you're dealing with it. So I know what it feels like to have depression and I know what it feels like to have to put your game face on and go into work, whether or not, yeah. you know, you're strong enough. 
And then simultaneously to that, for the past two years, I worked with a team of people to develop the largest and fastest growing mental health employee resource group in my Fortune 500 company, which was an incredible opportunity to have the company shift its culture to be more inclusive for people with invisible disability. Yeah. Right. Like having open conversations about mental health, teaching leaders how to engage with people. So all of that. So that's like the trifecta. And so I'm now on a mission that more companies create compassionate, inclusive work environments for people with invisible disability. Because if you had a physical disability, the building would put in a ramp for your wheelchair. Right. Why are companies not recognizing how very important it is to really support people with invisible disabilities and really meet them where they are and allow them to do the best work that they can do? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you were to give a tip or two Mm -hmm. to a company at whatever size that wants to embrace a more inclusive culture in terms of invisible disabilities, what would you tell them? There's a, a bunch of things you could do on my website. Real quick, if you go to my website, michelledickinson.com and go to programs, first of all, I have five steps to cultivating a culture of compassion. I boil it down so I can share with them. I mean, I can share with you, like, obviously, it's important to have a clear vision, have a remit at at the highest level of the organization that this is what we're up to. We won't tolerate stigma. We want employees to feel like that this is their home. It's important that there's easily accessible health resources. And that means when you make a phone call for a therapist, it doesn't take three weeks to get in. Right. Because if you're motivated to get the care, you should be able to get it. There's great programs that leaders can take around elevating their comfort level with engaging in conversations with employees. But the thing I'm super excited about is something called a peer-to-peer program where you're leveraging your own people with lived mental health experience and you're training them and you're creating a support mechanism for other employees. Incredible. Incredible. So let's say that I work at a certain company and I'm either noticing that one of my coworkers is displaying symptoms that I suspect to be depression or they are sharing with me that they're going through any kind of mental health challenge currently. Yeah. What do you think I should do? What is yeah. the best way for me to reach out? So let me reverse engineer that question. Sure. Why do people do nothing? Why do, why do you think people shy away from someone that they think might be dealing with something and look the other way? You don't do that with someone who has cancer. You bring them a casserole. But why do you maybe look the other way when, it, when you suspect someone has depression? And it is because we, we take on, I think a lot of people have just such a generous spirit and a kindness about them. We take on the responsibility of being a therapist and that's not something that we should do or feel right. like we should do. Right. The smallest thing in terms of how are you doing and just listening empathetically and compassionately could make all the difference. Right. Right. Helping, helping to support them understand what their next step is and maybe just listening to them. You don't have to fix it. I think a lot of people take on the fact, well, if I can't fix it, I'm not even going to listen to them. Right. Listen to them. Just yeah. be, be the ear that maybe they're not even getting at home. Right. And then make yourself aware of all the available resources within your organization and help them access them. But I think above all, the smallest and the most important thing 
is everything. And that's listening empathetically yeah. and yeah. just being there. And, and eyeball to eyeball, are you okay? That yeah. can go so far. Yeah. But don't think you got to fix it. And don't think you got to be the, you know, an on-site therapist. That's not your role. But caring is something we all can do. I think what you said is so important and so valuable. And I think it's something that I oftentimes think that we forgot to do as people. It's the most essential and basic thing, which is to be present and listen. It is quite, I would say, even dangerous for some people who are not therapists to take that role on themselves because then it just becomes a big mess. And so... You're right. It's not about trying to fix something. Uh, You can't make the other person feel better right away. You can help them find resources because I think that a lot of times people with mental health crisis or challenges don't have the energy to go and figure out what the resources are. So that would be a wonderful service for someone and just being checking in with them and being present, being being a friend, just being a person, being present. If there's anybody listening to us right now that is battling anxiety, depression, bipolar, dealing with another person who battles all types of mental health challenges, what would you advise them? So the scariest thing that you can do is stay in your head by yourself in isolation. Yeah. The most important thing I would tell someone is find someone to talk to. Right. Find someone to talk to. It might not be a family member. It might not be a friend. You might not be comfortable. It might not be a boss, a coworker. It might be a total stranger, but conversation is everything. And it becomes your thoughts that are going on in your head that you're trying to navigate on your own and you're trying to figure out on your own become far less scary when you talk about it. Yeah. So just to step out of your own head. Absolutely. Um, if you are the one who is battling and if you are next to someone else who is battling, just be there, be present and let them get out of their own head. Michelle, I can't thank you enough, first of all, for sharing your journey. And I can't thank you enough for the valuable, you call that trifecta. It's, it's an incredible connection of bringing forth your personal experience and your tools and everything that you've learned are so valuable. And I think it's so important to build those channels within companies. I'm so glad that in recent years, talking about mental health became more common. I think that there is definitely progress. I don't know if you'll agree with me. There is some progress when it comes to the stigma, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of work to do. And so what you're doing is so valuable and I'll be rooting for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle Dickinson, for sharing your inspiring story and your powerful advice and inspiration with us. Thank you for bringing the topic of mental health to the heart of corporate America and for encouraging organizations to develop tools and culture for reaching out and knowing what to do when dealing with mental illness. If you are dealing with mental health challenges, if someone that you love or is in your social circle or work environment is hurting, let's drop the stigma. Let's talk. Let's never be alone. Thank you for joining me today, everyone. Don't forget, we all deal with challenges. Mental health is something that so many deal with, and it is time to talk about it openly. It is time to be there for one another. It is time to reach out and be a person and a friend.